Welcome to the ADHD Lounge Podcast. Whether you are someone with ADHD or a learning disability or just curious to learn more, come hang out with us in our lounge. I'm Alex. I'm a mom, a New Yorker, a Mets fan, a yogi, and a brunch enthusiast. I also happen to be diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD at the age of eight. I'm the founder of Capable Consulting, a coaching and consulting business that supports adults with learning disabilities and or ADHD. And I'm Katie, an ADHD advocate, coach, mom, author, founder of Women in ADHD, and I host the popular Women in ADHD podcast. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and now I have made it my mission to help neurodivergent adults learn to love their brains. In each episode, we'll be diving deep into the world of ADHD, discussing unique challenges, sharing our personal stories, providing support and resources, and bringing in experts to help us along the way. You can also find the two of us over at the ADHDlounge.com, an all-in-one ADHD coaching community for personalized guidance, goal planning, skill building, expert roundtables, and so much more to help you make the most of your amazing brain and live life to the fullest. So grab your favorite drink, maybe a croissant, grab a seat, or start walking or cleaning or however you choose to listen, because at the ADHD Lounge, you can come exactly as you are. Welcome to episode three. Today, we're joined by two lovely ADHD dietitians, Sarah Kushner and Alita Storch from the Wise Heart Nutrition. We're really excited about this conversation because we're talking about topics that are closely related to Katie and I when it comes to disordered eating and eating disorders, which is a really common problem that a lot of adults with ADHD and learning disabilities tend to have, but it's not so common in knowledge as to why we struggle with all of these different challenges related to food. Katie and I were really excited to have this conversation, mostly because we connected to it so much. There are so many people with ADHD and learning disabilities that struggle with disordered eating and eating disorders like ourselves. And this is a really common problem with adults with ADHD and learning disabilities, but it's also not something that people know much about. So we thought this would be a really interesting topic for us to dive deeper into and why we struggle with disordered eating, and why we're struggling with a whole slew of other issues related to food. Sarah and Alita's approach is something Alex and I wanted to shed light on as we have both rejected diet culture, and we've been practicing intuitive eating and health at every size for years. So the four of us talk about common struggles around food and ADHD, as well as some of their approaches that they use with their clients. We also talk about how to navigate difficult conversations around food and how to build a better relationship with food, your body, and your brain. Because ultimately, our goal is to help you nurture your neurospicy self from the inside out. So here we are with Alita and Sarah. Awesome. Okay, well, welcome, Sarah and Alita. We are super excited to have you joining us for this episode of the ADHD Lounge. Uh, why don't we get started? I want to hear a little bit about your background stories, maybe how you were diagnosed or even how you met each other. Sarah, why don't you go first? Sure. So my name is Sarah Kushner. I am a dietitian with ADHD. The story of my diagnosis began about the middle of high school, maybe sophomore or junior year. I did well in school as a lot of ADHDers do, but I struggled a lot. I struggled to meet deadlines. I struggled to motivate myself to do my work. And I went to my doctor and I said, I think I have ADHD. And he said, no, you don't. You're a high achiever. And I kind of was just dismissed. Uh, and this went on for several years until senior year of high school when I finally convinced him to let me do the test. And 
what do you know? I have ADHD. Um, so getting the diagnosis was really validating. And then pretty much from then through now, I just continued to learn more and more about how my ADHD affects me, um, you know, with my ability to do work in school and eat and, you know, live every aspect of my life, which kind of actually takes me to how I met Alita and how we started working together. So I was in grad school for nutrition and um, we were working in the nutrition clinic and we had some clients who came in with ADHD and I kind of had this aha moment of, oh my gosh, ADHD and food are so related. How did I not know this 10 years ago when I got diagnosed? Um, so it was cool to, you know, treat those clients at the same time, kind of start treating myself um, and start learning more about my own eating habits and how I can support myself in relation to my ADHD. Um, Alita and I actually share an alma mater. So she had graduated from the same program I was in several years before me. And so I heard her name just through the grapevine and my ears perked up when I heard dietitian who works with ADHD clients. I was like, oh, that is my future boss. Um, And here we are. She, you know, turns out she actually was my future boss um, and, you know, and friend. So um, yeah, that is how we started working together and how I got into ADHD nutrition. So you already knew that you had ADHD when you were going through grad school. Do they talk about neurodivergence at all in in <laughs> dietetics? You're you're missing this, everybody, but they're shaking their heads adamantly. <laughs> absolutely not. No, definitely not. Yeah, I feel really grateful to have had that one professor who knew that Alita was working with ADHD clients, and to, I mean, you know, kind of knew to refer out. That was really helpful. But no, we don't learn about it in school. I knew about my own ADHD, but I didn't really know anything beyond, you know, medication is a thing and things are a struggle for me, but I didn't really know to what extent until really until I started working with Alita and got to actually work one-on-one with clients. I find that so interesting because there's so many people who are getting diagnosed late in life who are getting diagnosed with one thing, let's say ADHD, and then realizing that all the other things that have impacted their life, whether it was food or anxiety or anything else, we're like, wait a second. So this is all like comorbidities. This is all related. I am struggling with all of these things. I'm someone who was diagnosed at eight. And it wasn't until I was way after college that I knew that eating disorders and disordered eating was related to my ADHD. So those aha moments are never stop becoming like front of mind. And the fact that that's not even something that dietitians are learning now, kind of scary, actually. Like if you guys don't know, how are we supposed to know? Yeah, it's really hard. Hopefully we're changing that. I That's <laughs> why we're surely. doing this. But <laughs> yes, I, I would hope more people would understand that there needs to be a change in that. What do you find are some of those, when you talk about those big aha moments around eating, what were some of your, from your own experience, Sarah, what were some of those things where you started to put two and two together? Most registered dietitians I've met have had complicated relationships with food and nutrition, (laughs) to say the least. So I'm curious, just from your, like, what were some of those moments where you were like, oh yeah, okay, this all makes sense. Yeah, that's such a good question. So, I mean, you just said it, right? We all come to dietetics for a reason. I'm no exception to that. I've certainly, you know, done my fair share of work on improving my relationship with food. And one of the first things that I think really clicked for me as far as how my ADHD affected my eating was that I was a perfectionist around food and everything else, right? I, you know, had to do the right thing. I had to eat the right thing in the right amount, you know, at the right time. Like everything had to be perfect. And if it wasn't, then 
my, you know, I had this like crazy anxiety spiral that I've since, you know, healed and moved past. But that was a major, a major thing for me that I had to realize there's a reason why it's been so hard for me to come out of this mindset. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that, you know, now that I have done the work of healing my relationship with food, I have some sort of more daily struggles. Like I get hyper-focused and I sometimes forget to eat. And that is something that I still deal with. You know, it happened a couple of days ago. Um, and I got my own strategies and stuff for coping with that and for honoring my body. Um, and, you know, doing what I need to do, but that is something that I think now that I've moved past, you know, sort of the diet culture sort of mindset, the struggle now is just, you know, making sure that I'm feeding myself all the time to keep myself, you know, motivated and fueled for the day and for, yeah, for everything. I think it's so interesting that you were saying you try to do the perfect thing and structure it a certain way because so many of our clients, I'm sure Katie can relate to this too. You try so many different things to manage your ADHD, whether you knew you were diagnosed or not. Somebody tells you the best way to organize your home. You do the exact thing. You are going to make sure every angle is perfect. If you're having food at a meal, you want to make sure you have your protein, fat, fiber, carbon. It has to look like this pretty rainbow, except for, you know, that happens every third meal of the week. I don't know. It's not necessarily going to be perfect, but it's the structure that people are clinging to when they have ADHD, because it's so hard to make decisions and it's so hard to figure out what structure looks like for you. If we say something can be messy and then not every meal has to be perfect, I think that's really hard to let go of because that's the only thing that makes sense if you're trying to look for perfection. Right. And I think not only that, we're told from such a young age that how we do things is wrong, right? So immediately, we that's kind of our common experience. So we turn away from how we intuitively do everything. Uh, and so we don't trust ourselves. And so diets really are the perfect trap for, you know, looking, oh, I'm going to tell you how to do things. I'm going to tell you what's right and wrong. And I think we are especially vulnerable to anything that will, that promises that it's going to teach us, you know, we've all read a million health self-help books, right? That's something I think a lot of us have in common, which is like believing that the answer is at the end of the next book, right? And so it's like every new diet we've ever done gets us further and further away from our intuitive voice when it comes to our own hunger cues and eating. It's also a quick fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you see the instant gratification, and that's also something that people with ADHD really struggle with. They want to fix whatever they're struggling with right now, and they want the result right now. Otherwise, they lose interest in whatever it is, but they don't realize that that's what's making it not sustainable. Alita, I'm curious. I want to hear from you. What was your experience around your dietetics education and how it did or didn't address neurodivergence? Yeah, similar to Sarah, we did the same program. Um, very little, um, if any talk about neurodivergence. I believe we talked about autism maybe for like three minutes um, at one point, and, and that was about it. I don't even remember ADHD getting mentioned at all. And I had done a lot of the work by the time I was in grad school to um, recover from an eating disorder that I had in undergrad. Um, I got really swept into diet culture in undergrad and was working with like a health at every size anti-diet team to get through that. But in grad school, I was still struggling and I couldn't figure out like, 
okay, I've done all this work. Like I've learned intuitive eating. I've, you know, rejected diet culture. I've done all these things and I'm still really struggling with food and I don't understand what's going on. And I didn't get like an official on the books diagnosis until grad school with ADHD. Um, as a kid that was kind of like thrown around and I was a product of the nineties and my parents were like, whatever, you don't know what that is. Sure. So it wasn't treated, I guess, until grad school. And then the second I had some treatment and some tools, I was able to bring more awareness to what was going on and notice like, oh, this is a logistical problem. Like this is me not being able to like organize my life enough in order to feed myself. And so like, of course I'm binging at night. I'm not eating enough throughout the day. Or of course I'm like eating the same exact thing every day, right? Like I need something simple. I'm in grad school. Um, So it was lots of those aha moments that helped me understand like how my ADHD was impacting my eating. But I didn't really think about it as like a global ADHD experience until I was working in higher level of care for an eating disorder clinic. And I saw a lot of ADHD clients really struggling with kind of that neurotypical format, neurotypical approach, and like not able to feed themselves on the weekend and being told they were non-compliant. And so the my experience in higher level of care was really what led me to realizing like, oh, there there's a population of people that need more support and need more like individualized support. ADHD is a specialized population. So I just kind of dove into it from there and realized, right, most of my clients had ADHD. <laughs> we found each other. We usually do. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I got to where I was. And yeah, took Sarah on as an intern. Um, and she was obviously amazing from the get-go. And now we're working together. And that is that is our specialty with ADHD. I'm really glad you guys are even talking about this because you're just driving it home that this is not something that people were talking about or studying, but all of the problems that each of you have mentioned are so specific to ADHD that if you were to tell somebody who doesn't have ADHD and you say like, I forgot to eat, they'd say, how? Like, I don't understand. Don't you have to like get up to go to the bathroom and then realize like it's lunchtime. It's like, you think I got up to go to the bathroom? That meant that I drank (laughs) enough water to like get up to go to the bathroom let alone like remember to eat like these are so unique to us and I love for us to be able to maybe even talk about some of the tips that you talk about or staples that you really like to have in your home or on the go so that you do remember to drink your water more often so that you don't forget your meals or even just staple go-to things because I know you also mentioned like people eat the same things over and over again it's because it doesn't require thinking but then you're like I'm not in the mood for the fact that I've eaten eggs 14 days in a row and actually it's not 14 it's probably like 40 days in a row because it became so routine I don't know you you tell me is there something that you always want to have in your fridge or freezer or pantry that helps you when you can't make decisions? Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good question, Alex. Um, I also want to point out, you know, you said, well, getting up to pee would mean that I went, that I drank enough water, but it also has to mean that you're in tune with your body's cues that you have to go to the bathroom, which, you know, I could drink water like for days on end and like, just ignore my need to pee for a while until I'm like, oh my God, I'm bursting, which a lot of ADHDers run into that. And the same thing happens with hunger cues. So you get them, right? Although I think people with medication don't get hunger cues. And I think that that's also part of this. 
Yeah. So they can look different. Um, they can be, you know, kind of subdued and suppressed. Um, they may, rather than getting like hunger pangs, they may get hangry or irritable or tired, you know, things that are not as easily noticeable or recognizable as hunger cues. Um, I tell my clients, you know, if you find yourself thinking about food a lot, if your mind is drifting towards food, that probably means you're hungry. That may not happen if you're on meds because you're probably hyper-focused on something else. But, you know, there are lots of ways to know that you need food without necessarily feeling that like growling stomach feeling. So that is one thing that I work with a lot of my clients on is how do you know if you're hungry is sort of step one, right? It's hard to know to feed yourself if you don't know if you're if you need food. So that's sort of step one. In regards to your question about what are some things to keep around the house for when decision making is really hard, for when executive function is really hard. I like to recommend, and this is also what I do in my own life, keeping things that you know you like, whether it's like a food that's currently giving you a lot of dopamine. Um, so for me, that right now is peanut butter puffins, as Alita is very aware. <laughs> um, it's like such anything peanut butter is sold. Anything peanut butter. Actually, this is funny. I eat my peanut butter puffins with peanut butter on them because I can't get enough. It is, I mean, and milk. So people always ask, do you put milk? Yes, I do. So FYI, that's my hot tip. You got more protein. I'm not judging. (laughs) It's so tasty. It really brings out the peanut butter flavor. So I'd say, you know, anything like that, like I've been on a puffin kick for a couple months now and I don't see it going anywhere. So foods like that, that, you know, you really like, and you know, I sometimes eat puffins three times a day. I feel so silly saying that sentence, <laughs> but um, I eat them anytime I I want, really. I mean, I you know I eat any food anytime I want, um, and I eat them if I don't have the energy to do something else, if I'm running out the door, you know, if I have a client in a few minutes, you know, I that just has become my go-to food. But other things like frozen foods, you know, Trader Joe's is one of my true loves. Um, I keep a lot of their frozen food in my freezer for when I don't have anything prepared or when I don't want to prepare anything. Um, things like that, things that I know... Sure. Maybe it's not like the thing I'm craving hundred percent at that moment, but if I know I like it, I know it's tolerable and you know, it gives me enough dopamine. Those are the foods that I'd say keep around, um, all the time. So, I mean, I, I'm pretty much keeping the puffin industry alive at this point because I buy so many boxes and I love it. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. But that is something that I've found to work for people where a lot of ADHDers come in thinking like, I want a meal plan. I want to cook. I want to have all this stuff ready. And that's great. And we do work on those strategies. But something else that we also work on is what is your backup for when that inevitably, you know, doesn't happen one or more times during the week? Yeah, just to kind of echo it, right? Like that will happen more than one or two times a week. It's inevitable. (laughs) Um, And I found for myself and for my clients that when that decision fatigue or analysis paralysis shows up, that's often a sign that you waited too long to eat, right? Or that you are overly hungry, which feels like really counterintuitive um, and not like great for survival that like when we're really hungry, we can't decide what to eat. But it is something that happens. So I like to do sort of like a three minute sit down, think about my options, look through the pantry. And if at the end of that three minutes, I haven't made a decision then I have a fallback option. And if it's like the middle of the day, that's always pretzels and cheese sticks. And I always have those on hand. And so then it's just sort of like taking the decision out of it. And then when I eat that, then it can often bring me down to a level where I can make a decision around like what meal to eat. Um, And I might even have more energy, right? Like put something in the microwave. So I really like to use that kind of like, I almost think of it like a three minute timeout to just like, Sit and think, but not to put too much pressure on myself and know that there's there's that fallback option. 
Sarah mentioned a lot of the same foods that I would recommend, right? Things that are really delicious, lots of different textures. I like to encourage clients to have things really visible. So if something's in the cupboard, a lot less likely to go get it, go dig it out. Um, we have bins um, in our cupboards and there are bars at the bottom that will probably never see the light of day, right? But the ones at the top <laughs> are the ones that we're grabbing and that we're noticing. So like having trail mix on your desk or having bars in the drawer that you open every day when you're sitting at your desk doing work. And so having those visual cues can be really helpful and can again, like take some of the decision fatigue out, right? Like if there's trail mix on your desk and you're hungry, eat some trail mix. Great. My husband always asks me, what do you not want to eat? That's usually my go-to is what do you not want to eat so that I can eliminate like flavors that I absolutely do not want. And then I can narrow down the thing that I do. And that's been like my go-to move for a while. I love that. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things I still marvel at is is how medication is often touted as this wonderful appetite suppressant, right? That's how it was given. When I was diagnosed, my doctor prescribed Vyvanse and she said, as an added bonus, it's an appetite suppressant. And just that whole culture around you know, ignoring our hunger cues, or at least, you know, not even having them and how well, that's wonderful that is. How do you work with your clients around medication? And what uh, Becca King, the ADHD nutritionist, I love it. She calls it unintentional deprivation or unintentional restriction versus intentional restriction, which I think, you know, is so I, I love thinking that way in terms of all the ways in which we don't mean to not eat, but next thing you know, it's 3pm and you haven't and kind of what are some strategies that you work on with clients around medication and just this whole belief system that this is this wonderful thing that we're doing for ourselves by not eating all day? Yeah. Yeah. It can be really hard and really individual, right? A lot of clients come in saying, you know, I have body image issues, you know, they have relationship with food issues and they're on these meds and they kind of come in saying, I like it. You know, I like that. I'm not hungry. And I don't like that I can't stop binging at night, right? Like, why can't I just not be hungry? And the reason that you binge at night after you don't eat all day on meds is because you actually are hungry and just not honoring your body and not giving it what it needs during the day. And so really the first thing that I always do is challenge their beliefs in a gentle and kind way. But, you know, we get into it and we say, like, why is it so appealing to you to not have an appetite and to not want to eat? And sort of, you know, doing the body image work, doing the work that we need to do before we start incorporating the strategies like visual cues, like timers, like, you know, having food kind of in your pocket, like having food in the car, kind of having food anywhere that you need to keep it in order to just have it accessible. I would say, yeah, the first line of defense is always just figuring out why that belief is so deeply rooted. And can we support them in changing that belief to I want to honor my body, even though I'm on meds, even though I don't feel like eating, I know that I need to. And that can be a really big hurdle for a lot of people. I feel like that also ties into that intuitive eating piece that it's not just, I want to turn off my hunger. Like I'm okay with turning off the hunger cues, but also even if they're turned on, that you're not allowing yourself to have the foods that you actually want. Like my neighbor came over it was a big birthday week for my family. We've had tons of dessert. And she's like, I can't believe you keep all of this stuff around. I'm like, I opened the cabinet. I'm like, these Oreos are from December. They, they have no like bearing on my life whatsoever. They're there. If I want them, I can open them. Like, it doesn't matter to me. But 
you have to get to a place that that's okay, which is really scary, especially when you've been told, oh, it's a bonus that you don't have a appetite. Oh, we should be smaller. It's so icky. It's so icky. And I think we're just so much more susceptible to people pleasing in addition to having that decision fatigue or just even having those cues. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really planting seeds is the biggest thing that we as providers can do right now is, you know, I don't come in expecting to change someone's life on day one, right? I don't think that I'm going to be the one person who convinces them that they need to honor their body and eat intuitively and, you know, feel enough during the day, right? Like that will come with time. But the main thing we can do is give them a space where that is okay. I've actually even, this is kind of a random side note, but kind of fun in that, you know, planting seeds, like kind of grows the flowers everywhere. I've had to not had to, but, you know, I do a lot of that talk with my partner who like all of us grew up in a diet culture household. And now he goes to work and brings snacks and people always comment like, Oh, I can't eat that. You know, like this is such a dangerous food for me. And now he has started making comments to his coworkers like, Oh, well, all you have to do is just have it around and it'll eventually be fine. And I just feel really proud. And it's, you know, it's the same thing with ADHD. You can just feel very hard because, because ADHD. Yeah. There's also playing into that. Like I'm being good today, quote unquote. I'm not going to eat the things, but a lot of the times you're not going to eat those things. You are going to binge it later, or you're going to binge around it and eat absolutely everything else besides the one thing. If you just had the stupid cookie that was there, it would have been fine. That's also part of this. Like I, I, I can't even believe how much was tied into ADHD that I wish that I knew and how much I I, mean, I know we're talking about it, but just how, how susceptible women are in general. But I also have a lot of men who struggle with their disordered eating and binge eating related to their ADHD. And I think just having this conversation and shedding light on this, like anything that we've mentioned that you could sit around and say like, oh my God, I've done that. I hope that we're giving people that realization that you're you're not alone, that these are struggles that are very common, as Sarah and Alita are mentioning with their clients and things that they work on. I just, I feel so much anger anytime a client comes in and says, you know, and my provider like told me it was going to help me lose weight or my provider told me like I won't be as hungry and it will help with my binge eating. Um, because not only is that perpetuating the idea that the end goal is thinness, right? That that's the thing that we should all be working towards is thinness. But it's also setting ADHDers up for more like of a sense of shame and failure because it is essentially another diet, right? Like by curbing your hunger, you are restricting and your body is going to have that backlash. Your body is going to end up making up for it somehow because our bodies are really cool and they are biologically wired for survival. Um, so it's it's sort of setting setting ADHDers up for that feeling of like, oh, I failed again, right? Personal responsibility. Like even the medication couldn't help me with my binge eating. Even the medication couldn't help me lose weight. So yeah, I just, I feel a lot of compassion for ADHDers who get that message from their doctors. Katie, feel free to say something else, but I was going to say, I'd love to know what is the first thing that somebody who's coming to you and struggling with could really take a step back to say like, what is my relationship with food? What is it that I'm struggling with the most so that they can 
take the first approach that makes sense for them. Do you want to take this, Sarah? My strategy, I think, is kind of unpacking their, I mean, their life, really. Like we start from, I mean, day one, like what was your family situation like? What sort of diet culture were you exposed to as a kid? As well as what sort of difficulties were you placed in because of your ADHD? Because I do have, you know, like Alita and I both experienced, and maybe you guys too, you know, we were not given the tools to even know we had ADHD or, you know, deal with it once we knew. And so most of our clients haven't either, right? They were told like, it's okay. You know, like you get such good grades, like just do what you're told, you know, just do it. And they were not ever given the space or the tools to cope. They were just sort of told like, you have to make do because this is what you do as a human, which is not, not true. Um, And there are other ways to do it. And so I usually start from there to start with like, what were the tools that you were not given? What are the things that, that happened to you or that you had to deal with that you think have made it really hard for you to have a good relationship with food, to understand what you personally need as a human and as an ADHD -er. Um, so I, yeah, I go deep, I guess is, is the answer that I, we just go all the way back and, you know, charge up all the stuff that has made life really difficult. I think that's really great. Yeah. I love that. And I love it. You're talking about, right. Identifying like the diet culture side of it and also the ADHD side and hopeful for those can be in parallel and can be such a struggle. Um, and so being able to like make space for the, both of those pieces at the same time is so important and thinking about how that they play off one another. And then in terms of food, kind of that first step, like maybe once you've done some of that deeper work would be just bringing awareness to what's going on and noticing like, how often are you eating throughout the day? I'll have clients just every time they eat, just like, write down the time um, or take a screenshot so that they can kind of just keep tabs because oftentimes people don't even realize that they're not eating very frequently. They think they're eating frequently and then they realize, oh, it's been six hours since I've eaten. So with ADHDers, my first step with everything is like bring awareness to it, understand what's going on, and then we can figure out how to make changes with that or how to um, make adjustments. I do that with my clients in general with a lot of things because they think there's so little self-awareness that we have because we get hyper-focused on things or we have that time blindness or we have that decision fatigue. And I think that visual reminder is so important. I think that's why a lot of people like to have like visual timers on their desk is because that realization of having it in your face of like, oh yeah, I now have a screenshot that says I ate six hours ago. If you ask me, flat out when's the last time I ate I have to actually think about it right before this call but could have been six hours ago because I would have been too busy with something else so I think that that's really important to for a lot of things not just food related of how can you bring that self-awareness of what is going on with your mind and body I think in doing that will help you be in tune with what your needs are regardless like I need to stand up and go to the bathroom. I need to, I don't know, go outside and get fresh air or I stop being focused. I think a lot of people think that when they're not focused on their work, like it's them, but it's probably because they're hungry. So that's really important to think about too. I love the idea of challenging beliefs too, because it felt very, my ADHD diagnosis felt very similar to me 
as when I left diet culture. Like they both really had this take the red pill kind of feeling about them where it was like, oh, the the curtain has been drawn back and now I see the truth and I'm challenging what I was challenging the status status quo, right? And I think it's so important the younger you can talk to somebody about that, um, the better in terms of the fact that there's like, you know, you may have been fed this idea, um, but there's actually a different way of looking at this. And now, and now, Sarah, you work with teenagers, right? What are some of the new the differences or some of the challenges with young people who might still be living at home with parents who either have a very different view of neurodivergence uh, or don't even believe in it, or even with diet culture perpetuated in the home? How do you how do you even begin to unpack that? <laughs> yes, that is, yeah, such a good question and so difficult sometimes. Um, yes, I do it for teenagers. They are all so lovely. It is really nice working with younger people, actually, because they come in with a whole different perspective, right? Yes, they've been influenced by diet culture and, you know, several of my teens have eating disorders, but they're also young enough where I think they're still really open to the fact that there are other things out there. Whereas with adults, you know, they've had maybe like 30, 40, 50 years of diet culture or eating disorder. And so it's, it's just takes a lot longer to sort of like dig through all that stuff. And so with my teenagers, yeah, there's a lot of navigating, you know, how do you go to the grocery store? How do you make sure that you have the food that you need? I have some teens who, you know, whether or not the parents like this, they keep food in their room. You know, they say like, I'm going to get some pretzels. I'm going to get some crackers or cookies or whatever it is. And I'm going to just keep that box in my room and know that I have that when I need it. Because like you said, a lot of these teens are surrounded by diet culture at home and or parents who don't understand neurodivergence or think that it's a thing that needs to be fixed or that can be fixed, right? They should just kind of learn to be neurotypical, which is of course not a thing. So we do do a lot of navigating of, you know, what kind of conversations can you have with your parents to let them know how important this is? And I have done work with parents as well. We do invite parents into session, you know, with the teen's permission as it's appropriate so that we can have sort of a group conversation around that, which I think a lot of parents find that helpful too, to feel like they're in the room. That being said, you know, I do really value the safe space that I provide for my teens. And so working with them one-on-one is also really, really important to, you know, establish that trust and make sure they feel like they're safe. But yeah, it's a lot of sort of how can you build tools, you know, before you have your driver's license and can take yourself to the store, how do you build tools to just kind of protect yourself in the environment that you find yourself in at home. It's also making me think of how do you go through the comments? Because I think the comments that come from different people who don't understand this anti-diet approach when it comes to anything in general, say like they, they don't understand haze, which do we mention to people what haze is? Haze is health at every size approach. So I think when you're submerged in diet culture and you don't believe in something like haze and you're navigating through your food choices and someone comments on what you're eating or if you're eating or anything like that. I'd love to also talk about that because again, people with ADHD and learning disabilities, they just want to be a people pleaser and like kind of approaching this and advocating for themselves and what their needs are is really important. I've definitely seen both sides of it of like the people pleasing and then also kind of that like social justice warrior. Right. And I think that comes from, they call it like emotional dysregulation, but I feel like it's just like emotional intensity. We feel our emotions very, very deeply. And so I think we can get right, like really fired up when 
we're doing work to reject diet culture and then someone is putting diet culture on us. And so I like to remind clients that like, it's not their job to convince everyone, right? (laughs) That what they're doing is the right way and that there might not even be a right way. Um, And I think when clients feel permission to just like be in their own experience and say like, okay, that's great. That's yours. That's yours to hold. And I'm going to like keep doing my work that that can be really helpful. Just a couple of sort of resources and tools that I sometimes recommend to people, depending on the person, depending on the situation. So if I'm talking to a client who happens to be a parent or the parent of one of my clients, I will always recommend the book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. It is so good, so helpful. I've had so many parents read it and say, wow, it's really, you know, I can't wait for my partner to read this. This is so like eye-opening. So that has been really helpful to give parents sort of a feeling of there's something you can do to to learn on your own time. I think a lot of parents feel like they want to be doing something. They just don't know what. So that I found to be a really helpful resource. Also, a sort of game that I talk about with some of my clients, um, again, kind of parents or people in family situations is to, you know, spend some time at the end of the day, maybe on your drive home with your kids or something like that. Each person goes around and you identify what was the silliest or the dumbest diet culture thing you saw today. And you kind of make a game of it. So you would say like, oh, this person in class is like talking about their so-and-so restriction. Oh, like that's so silly, you know, and you kind of make it a game to acknowledge it is a thing that happens in the world. It's a thing that's all over the place. You know, we can't escape it, unfortunately. Like Lita said, rather than trying to fight it, rather than trying to be that warrior for everyone and everything all the time, because that's really draining for you. Why not just talk about it with the people that you trust and make a game of it and say like, I can't believe this thing happened, you know, and be grateful that you are not in that situation, right? That you are able to acknowledge that that is die culture and that you don't have to engage with it. Right. And that's sort of that, that alternative narrative that so many of us don't even question. I mean, there were so many things that I didn't even know to question. I often talk about the fact that I was like, before my diagnosis, I was only treading water. So I being in a state of treading water, you, you don't have and playing whack-a-mole. There's no way for you to even be able to step back and say, is this correct? Is this true? Is this, you know, uh, so you have to get to a state of regulation before you can even start to ask those questions. It's like that two-step realization that this is even something to be questioned in the first place. I'd love to also know, as we are kind of starting to wrap up, we've talked about so many things and I'm realizing that we might've just helped people diagnose themselves or self self-diagnose with some type of disordered eating or eating disorder as we were unpacking a lot of this conversation. But I'd love to help people figure out what are some next steps that they can take from listening to this show that will help them heal their relationship with food or heal their decision fatigue as they are going about their day. I'm thinking of something that Alita said a few minutes ago about building awareness. And I I hope that we provided some tools today to help people who are listening build awareness. You know, if you feel like you're engaging in any of the behaviors that we mentioned or that you have any of the struggles that we talked about, that feels like a good step one. And to continue doing that, you know, to find resources online, on Instagram, books, podcasts, other things to just really find, I want to say find your people, right? Because that's how you really start to do this is to find your community of people who are going through the same or a similar thing as you. And that was actually something that really helped me in the beginning of my journey to heal my relationship with food was to find podcasts, to find articles, to find people who were talking to me in a way that I could understand and saying what you're going through doesn't have to be your whole life. This does not have to go on forever. 
Um, and that really made me start to say, oh my gosh, I resonate so much with this person saying this and this person saying this. And it just made me feel kind of loved, which sounds weird because these were all strangers. So I wasn't even talking to, right. They were talking to me and it just made me feel like I had a community of people who were all going through the same thing. And at the same time, I was picking up little tidbits and tools along the way that I learned to incorporate into my own life. So I would say, yes, build awareness in a way that is bigger than just this one amazing resource. Yeah. My first thought was very similar community, right? Find your people. (laughs) I think oftentimes ADHDers can feel really alone. um, And especially with late diagnosis, it can feel really confusing and sort of like you miss the boat on finding your community. On Facebook, there's the intuitive eating with ADHD community. It's like a Facebook group. group, um, And there's incredible community there, awesome conversations. um, And it's just like a really safe place to talk about ADHD and diet culture. So yeah, I think finding those safe spaces, connecting with other people, working with a dietitian, if that's like within someone's resources and and possibility, um, a dietitian can be a really great source of support. Yeah, I think oftentimes when people look into intuitive eating, they think it's the kind of thing that they can do on their own. Uh, and that they, you know, or or think maybe I'm just going to stop dieting and that's what intuitive eating is. And I always encourage, I mean, I know, re, you know, everybody's resources are different, uh, but I always encourage people to not do it alone, that this really, you do need professional um, guidance and help. I think it's really, really important that there is some structure and stability, even in intuitive eating. And leaving dieting behind that to have a, you know, to have some structure and scaffolding there to meet you. That accountability, that's something that we're always in this type of community, the ADHD community is always looking to have accountability and partners to say like, oh, did you eat today? And somebody who understands, you know, some of the issues and and what's behind them. So now you guys have the brilliantly named Nourished Community, which who came up with that? It's such a brilliant name. Okay. Oh, that was Alita. Alita, the genius, so smart. It really is fantastic. <laughs> so it's nourish, but N E U, um, like neuro, and and so you created a community really for what we've been talking about, right? So, what do you find your clients are looking for the most in that communal online space? I mean, I think we developed it um, when Sarah and I both realized like we're both full with one-on-one clients, and we can only see so many people every week, and um, right, like. We're, we're getting exhausted um, trying to serve everyone who needs help. And then to also make help more accessible and more affordable um, and people being able to like get help from anywhere um, in, in the world. So we developed a membership community and it is basically there's like an online community where people can support one another, can have conversations. It's off of Facebook, which I think is really important for ADHDers, right? Because it's so easy to get sucked in to other things. So it's like a dedicated space for people to connect. But then we're also providing workshops for deeper learning. So Sarah and I um, lead workshops. And then also we have guest experts. And Katie was our most recent guest expert and did an amazing workshop to address things that maybe are even outside of eating and are more ADHD focused, but really kind of tie into the bigger picture. So there's a lot of resources, a lot of community, a lot of accountability. And we're starting group coaching in August to provide more of that like one-on-one support. And it's just fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really fun to watch the community kind of like rise up around us or in our phones, you know, but um, it's cool because we have a couple, I mean, you know, several members who 
people post questions, they post experiences, they post challenges they're having. And Alita and I, of course, are there to provide support and, you know, use our expertise appropriately. But other community members also will jump in and say, yeah, I had a similar experience. This is how I handled it. Or, you know, I'm sympathizing with you. I'm empathizing. You know, I, I hear you and I know that's really hard and it is really cool to watch ADHDers from, like Leah said, all over the world come together and support each other in this space that's made just for that. Um, so that I think is really cool. And we are excited to be, you know, starting some more opportunities for a live calls, live interaction among members because, an online community is great, right? It's accessible at your fingertips anytime you need. And it's really cool to be able to get on a video chat and say, oh, here's how you sound in person. Here's what you look like. You know, here's, you know, how I interact with you on a more face-to-face level. So we are really excited to be bringing that into our community as well. That's awesome. I, I'm a huge fan of communities, obviously, and, and online communities and finding each other and being there for that support and, and that validation, I think is such a huge part of our ADHD journey and our ADHD treatment is being able to feel less alone and also kind of take some of the shame out of some of these behaviors and some of the things we struggle with. And that's amazing. And it, when you talk about like food and the bigger picture, it reminds me of that quote, like the way you eat is the way you live, right? Like there's so much so ADHD is everywhere. It's just, it still it boggles my mind all the ways in which it, you know, like you say, like Alex, you were diagnosed at eight and yet you don't even realize how it affects all of these seemingly random elements in your life and eating and nutrition and exercise and our relationship with self-care, I think <laughs> is something, um, yeah, it's so, so um, complicated. Uh, Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about some of these issues that I think are really, really universal for neurodivergence and the amazing work you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is so much fun. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, anyway, well, thank you guys so much. Yeah, yeah, this is such an awesome resource um, that you're provided and we're providing and I'm excited to hear more about it. And that's a wrap for this episode of the ADHD Lounge podcast. Thank you for listening and make sure to join us over at ADHDlounge.com. We've got resources, co-working, workshops, and a community of amazing ADHD folks just like yourself. And you can also attend these recordings live where you can ask questions and join in these discussions as they're happening. So make sure to head over to the ADHDlounge.com to join us today and you can find that link in the show notes. And if you've made it this far and you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback means the world to us and it helps us reach more listeners who could benefit from these conversations. Seriously, do it. Go now before you forget.